Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome to another episode of Life on Mars. I'm Alex, the CEO and founder of, of Marsbase. This episode is very special because we'll be talking to Brian Leonard, CEO and founder of Grouparoo. But Brian was mostly well known for being the CTO and co-founder of TaskRabbit, one of the hottest startups in the in the US and between 2009 and 2014 or so until they got acquired by IKEA, the Swedish company, to expand to, to Europe and the rest of the world, right? And this episode in particular, we'll be talking about choosing this technology for your startup, especially if you got a CTO as a co-founder, it's relatively easy or it seems so, but it's not, right? They went with a really good experiment in Ruby and Rails when they decided to adopt this technology when it was only like, you know, four years old into the market. And how did they not choose Ruby and Rails for this new adventure in 2020? Not so much because Ruby and Rails is not valid anymore, but because it was a different kind of product. And you need to choose your technology depending on what kind of product you want to build, not whether it's trendy or not, or you're going to be finding developers easily or not, right? Uh, we also talked about transitioning from a purely B2C product like TaskRabbit was to a B2B product focused on an open source community like Grouparoo is. We also focused on his role as a CTO, very oriented to uh, product. And now as a CEO, how did he transition from being CTO, which is, you know, a relatively private and inwards looking role into the company to being the public face of a new company, right? And how to build a project around open source. I think those are the main takeaways from this episode and I hope you will enjoy it. Welcome to Life on Mars, the podcast about innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship of Mars-based. We've got tonight a very special guest, the mighty, mighty Brian Leonard, CEO at Grouparoo. We I, we met uh, a couple of years ago when he was still working at TaskRabbit as a CTO. And if you remember correctly, uh, one of the founding members of TaskRabbit as well, you were uh, in Madrid trying to expand the international a group of TaskRabbit that had been recently acquired by IKEA, and you're trying to build sort of the European branch of it. How are you doing, Brian? Welcome to the show. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. What happened between these two last years? Because you switched companies. Now you're the CEO and founder of Group Peru. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, not much has happened in the last two years. You know, in, in the biggest news, there's a global pandemic, and I uh, founded a new company. Those are by two of the, the, the biggest things in my, in my life at the moment. Uh, yeah. I was in Madrid working uh, after the IKEA acquisition uh, to get TaskRabbit launched in Europe um, and help IKEA hire some people in Spain. Um, both of those are, are happening. We're now in several countries uh, in Europe. Uh, definitely Spain, launched now in, in Madrid, um, Barcelona, and others, as well as uh, Portugal, Germany, France. Uh, we've been in the UK for a while. I think, I think next up on their list is, is, is Italy, uh, but I'm not directly involved anymore. Okay, yeah, that was a, I was going to ask because you had been involved for 10 years, if I remember correctly, one of the, yep. the technical co-founder. Um, that means that you had been evolving the company technologically. You were, effectively speaking, so you were the CTO, as a matter of fact. And uh, so one of the things that really struck me as surprising when, when we met in Madrid, you told me it was built on Ruby on Rails, right? And sure. that was one of the companies I, you know, it's not that I didn't expect, but every day we find a new company that's built in Ruby on Rails, right? How you, can you tell us a little bit like that? Because we're a specialized company in Ruby on Rails, right? And we want to know why did that decision happen? Like, why did you just choose it as a technology back then? Yeah, I mean, that choice was made in 2008, so it was a long time ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was on version two at the time, as I recall. And uh, what I'd been doing before that was working at IBM, uh, primarily in C++ and Java. And, you know, like anybody that's used Ruby certainly knows, uh, it's, it was a, you know, they optimized for developer happiness, right? And, and Rails on top of that uh, was was a breath of fresh air compared to 
the other options available at the time, probably PHP, uh, maybe PHP cake, as I recall, like was a sort of ish Rails yeah. thing that, that I might have tried. Yeah. Um, but uh, Rails was, was great at that time. And I just, I dove fully into the, we made that choice on a hope. Um, I dove fully into the culture, like Rails casts and all whole set of podcasts. I can't remember all the names now. Um, among many I remember listening to on the train was the people that started GitHub uh, and like saying like, there's this new thing called Git and we're experimenting with it, right? Like this is, so this is very, very early in the, in the journey yeah. uh, at this yeah, point yeah. now. Actually, and, and now that I was, I was checking, so Rails was launched in 2004. That means it was only four years in when you decided to use it as a technology yep. for, for task driving, right? And in one of our previous episodes, we were discussing with the CTO of Factorial, which is also a Ruby Rails company from here. And they also bet uh, for Teambox by around that time. So basically, when you're launching a company and, and you're, you want to, you want to use the technology, and especially in a startup, you want to have a fine balance between using something too consolidated that, you know, there's already a market there. Maybe, maybe you know, you will not be able to attract top tier uh, um, technology people, developers and yeah. so forth, because they are working for companies with much more budget. But also you want to experiment with something new that you want to be able to have, you know, long term maintainability. And they explained that in the first company was Rails went well, second company was Elixir didn't go well, right? So uh, how did you calculate risk here? Was it a calculated risk or was it just like, fuck it, we're going to use your Ruby and Rails no matter what? I think something I've heard that I think I believe in, um, overall I believe in using fairly boring technology. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the, it's really about your business. Um, if you are a, I don't know, like magical AI business uh then like maybe we need to or, yeah, process data as quickly as possible like maybe there's certain things to do but if the innovation in your business is more product-based in general my recommendation is to choose tried and true things like i never got on the the mongo uh bandwagon in the 2014 range like you know my sql yeah. or postgres is, is completely fine with me i think those are very good things um rails I mean, just 2008 was a was a less option time, right? Like there wasn't anything that great. Like I had been working in Drupal and maybe some Cake and some things like that in the PHP land, but web technology, like I think we experimented with it and it seemed to be good. And like it was the if you're going to do that, only do it do one big bet on on the technology. Like one everything else you know perfectly, and we're changing this one thing. I yeah. wouldn't switch to Elixir and use Kafka syncing <laughs> to Mongo. Like I wouldn't do that. There's too many things that I don't know anything about. Uh, yeah. And so it was, the, it was the one thing that, you know, we didn't know about and it seemed to be a huge leap forward. And we're not even getting into the JavaScript frameworks for front end, right? Because sure. I don't know, like 2009, I don't know what was around, but it's probably jQuery. Now it's jQuery all the way, baby. It was not even Ember back then, so uh, no, maybe definitely not, not. not not around. Uh, but the, one of the cool things right now is that you know, fast forward to 2020, 2021, maybe, uh, if yeah. you will. So big corporations right now have got Ruby on Rails, right? Because yeah. Microsoft acquired GitHub, acquired LinkedIn, acquired Wonderlist, three companies built with Ruby on Rails. IKEA acquired TaskRabbit, therefore they have Ruby on Rails. Ford acquired one of our clients, Spin which is built in Ruby and Rails. So like big corporations right now have got a lot of Ruby and Rails going on, right? So it's, it's sure. do you think it's sort of become, maybe not mainstream, but like a, these solar no, technology, we always it's definitely wanted to mainstream. be. mainstream. Like, I think we want to keep the, I think you want to keep that indie vibe. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the reality, you know, real talk here for a second, like the reality is that, I mean, Amazon has uh, some major Amazon projects were built on Ruby and Rails too. Like it's everywhere. Um, oh, yeah. And frankly, um, it, it's just it's just a well-known solution. It's in the well-known bucket now, right? And it's not yeah. the hot new thing. The pe various people went to Elixir. Uh, various people went to Node. Closure. And <laughs> it's not the, you look at the Google Trends, like it's not the the hot thing. Uh, and frankly, we had trouble hiring a TaskRabbit 
because we've literally talked to every single Rails developer in San Francisco. Like, it's not a joke. Like, there's only so yeah. many on LinkedIn. Some number comes up. Let's call it 3,000. Uh, we have talked to all of those people. Wow. Um, and new people weren't bootstrap, um, uh, like a coding school kind of things or teaching Rails because it's super yep. usable. Right. Uh, but there was a huge gap in the middle. And, and even at the top, some people went to Scala and all these other things. And so we actually had trouble and we, we adopted a remote strategy um, about two years ago, um, maybe even three, so that we could get the best Ruby on Rails engineers that we could find uh, anywhere uh, in, in, in the country. But also because, you know, it's it's just not a matter of necessity. It's that everywhere, I like everywhere in the Ruby on Rails world, like most companies, or at least the most proficient companies, perhaps they're offering this remote uh, possibility, right? So now it's not, you know, it's not an advantage to offer remote. It's actually the status quo. And yes. if you're well, not doing remote, now. then you're behind, right? Certainly now. So when, when did you, when was it the year that the TaskRabbit adopted it? Just to probably put it in the timeline. I think we, had, we started hiring, we probably hired our first, well, the first thing that happens in my experience is people that you hired if you're on this journey, people that you hire locally decide they want to move to Austin or Salt Lake City yeah. or, you know, whatever. And you're yeah. like, well, I like you and you're great. So, oh, fine. And now, you know, it's starting to happen. And you have to start changing your culture when that happens, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. More documentation, like making sure that you ask them for comments on the, on the, the Zoom because, like, they're less likely to jump in on a brainstorming session, things like that. And then in probably 2017 or so, we said, you know what? Like, we, we've, it was actually after we got acquired. So when TaskRabbit got acquired, we only had 12 engineers. Oh, wow. Uh, it's pretty small for the. It's pretty small. Like, there's a lot of leverage in that story for sure. Um, right. Like, back end, four apps. <laughs> uh, you know, because we had a Tasker app and a client app um, yeah. times two platforms uh, and a website um, and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. Only, only 12 people. So, like, a lot of leverage in our, in our tooling there <laughs> and a lot of senior engineers uh, because, I don't know, it's just not many people and we were doing a lot of stuff. Then when we got acquired, we wanted to grow the team significantly. And in order to do that, we, um, in 2017, went, uh, went uh, like, anywhere. Senior engineers, anywhere. Basically. Two quick questions before we go into Kruparo, which is your current adventure. First one is one, what, what changed in the culture? Because you transitioned from non-remote to remote, right? Mm -hmm. I assume it was not remote first. It was just remote friendly. Correct me otherwise. But um, um, there's always a lot of struggle in these kind of transitions, right? Mostly because company, the company is not engineered for that. But also you've got mm -hmm. a team that perhaps you wouldn't have hired if the company mm -hmm. had been remote uh, from, the, from the first, uh, in the first yeah. place, right? So what company culture changes did you, did you face here? Any kind of struggle you faced? Yeah, I think the, where we started and, and maybe even where they're still at is... Uh, hiring only senior engineers remotely. Um, there's something about the mentoring and the pairing that we did um, with, with more junior engineers that didn't work as well, uh, or we, we projected didn't work as well. Uh, you know, sort of the more questions they had to ask, the, the more autonomous they could be, the more likely they would be a successful remote um, employee. And that's where we, where we started. Um, and when you do that, a variety of changes, like I talked about much more asynchronous written communication, which is a decent side effects of like decisions made and documentation and, and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but it's definitely harder work um, than chatting <laughs> over coffee. Yeah. Uh, and, and like meeting things like I talked about, like, as a meeting leader, I often like make sure that I check with people on the phone and like leave space in the room because you can't tell as easily when you can butt into the conversation with your idea. You know, it's a, it's like a slight delay and, or it's like this voice from like way over there. 
And so like, it's important to say like, is anyone on the call or even specifically if someone you think might have something to say, or you, you're as a meeting leader, you were kind of watching the screen and they kind of went like, uh, like, Hey, you know, you know, Phil, do you have something to, you have something to say here? Um, yeah, I, that kind like of thing a classroom, right? Kind yeah, of like the totally. classroom. You you know your students are not listening when you call them out by their name. They're like, oh yeah, no, yeah, I'm not, totally. I'm not they trying were... to catch them. I'm trying to get their input for sure. Uh, and be inviting to the input. So it's different to say, uh, does anyone on the call have you know something to say? Or explain something. Does everyone on the call understand? No one's gonna say no to that. Correct. But you can say, you can you can switch it around. You can say, uh, you know, Alex. Is there anything I could have explained better? Yeah, good point. Yeah, uh, more positive. And then they'll right? be like, "Yeah, I, I, you know, I got it because I'm not dumb. They don't want us to be dumb, right? Uh, <laughs> I got it. But like, I think you could have been clearer about this. And then I'll be like, "Oh yeah, would it helped if I said <laughs> this thing?" Uh, and then and then they'll, uh, you know, in general, you increase uh, the the culture of being ready to do that as well as understanding in, in that meeting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm joking here, but the stereotype of developer is a person who doesn't like talking, right? Doesn't like to talk. So therefore, the switch to remote, if you're not ready for that, like if you're not good at communicating, and chances are, if as a developer, you're a bit so-so on the communication side of things, then if it's forced into you, so wow, like the same that, you know, there was a lot of culture change for you guys in the company. Maybe somebody in the company felt like, oh, I don't want to be this company anymore because now it's remote and I got to do like mm. more calls, or like more input, more communication. I was happy to just sit in a corner in the office and just like coding eight to 10 hours a day, right? Something like that. The experience Maybe. Any, any, I, I, any I saw those people like chatting a lot with lots of snacks. I think it was more the snacks than the uh, introvert extrovert thing that that you know that they're missing at this point than uh than the the stereotypical with their with their headphones on i think it's Let's, the ease yeah. of interruption and getting help yeah it feels like a whole thing something that used to be like hey brian like this is weird like can you explain this or like why did you do this feels like a whole thing when you have to like reach out and like maybe even yeah. schedule a call like it's it's a it's a serious thing um and like that's the that's what can be lost if you don't make that a norm yeah yeah there's there's a lot of changes here and you know for instance as we tend to work more async but some clients are extremely synchronous and therefore there's a bit of a culture clash here and there sometimes and some of the clients they're like yeah um if you don't get any answer from me from me book me on my calendar. I was like, dude, that's the most aggressive thing I could ever think of. Like, I don't want people to put it, to put like meetings in my calendar. How do you even accept that? But if you build your company around interruptions, then yeah. I don't think you're very, you know, you're, you're not striving for productivity, but whatever floats the boat, right? Just to give con context to our audience, what kind of a CTO are you? Because we've spoken mm. to political CTOs, fundraising CTOs, Huh. More like hacker CTOs. How would you define yourself as a yeah, CTO? It's a, it's a good question. I've never, it's a little existential um, to think about <laughs> it. I think I'm a, uh, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a product CTO. I, I very oh. much enjoy, um, I think there's a, there's a lot of leverage in a CTO that, can ex work with the product team and or set the product direction themselves, uh, which I was doing for quite a while at TennisGrabbit, that, that understands how things are built and what's easy and what's hard and like can, can um, you know, sort of grease the wheels of progress there. I'm also like a, a builder CTO. Um, you know, it, it's actually quite challenging for me to like, at some point, I stopped looking at all the pull requests, right? <laughs> like, and and building things myself. Were you what? coding actually towards the end, or? Oh yeah, like oh, the wow. for better or worse, um, the whole time it changes what you're coding. Like in the beginning, obviously, I was the only one, and it was like, yeah, everything. Uh, and then <laughs> it's like critical features, and then basically by the end, um, even with twelve, but certainly with thirty plus, like. It's like non-critical 
either exploratory or like if this worked, it'd be great, but like it's not holding the business up. Um, we talked a little more before about like making a technological leap to, you know, for me, at least for to Ruby on Rails, like as a company, each of those leaps are super important. So the, the biggest leap that we made after that, and the only time I was as excited as I was from C to Ruby on Rails was when it was from uh, Objective-C and Android to React Native. Um, and so we were one of the first companies on React Native. And uh, that, it's not like we're jumping every time there's anything new. Like that was the only one, but it was a big bet. Uh, and so, like prototyping our React Native app um, in 2015, which is very oh early. wow, this is uh, very yeah early. pre pre Android release. Um, like literally, wow. we were we released a Tasker app to the Taskers on iOS before they even Facebook even released face uh, before Facebook even released the Android support. Wow. Uh, basically, it was you an Airbnb, basically, all right? Or yeah, very early for sure. Um, and that was because it was just so much more productive. Uh, and we were only twelve people. We couldn't. We didn't. We didn't have the, the scale to build it twice. Airbnb sort of regretted this decision. Mark. They did. So, they did yeah. regret the decision. Was it uh, uh, the same for you? Or was it entirely different? Was it good for you guys? In my opinion, I mean, there is certainly, like, especially at that point, and probably even now, there's different kinds of engineers. There, there's, I'll put it in Ruby terms since that's, you're, you're in that term. So there's like, this didn't work how I expected. Like, file an issue or ask somebody. And then there's the type of engineer that does bundle open and figures out what's going on. Like, you definitely had to be then, and maybe even now, the second yeah. kind, uh, just in the node modules in this case, um, right. to get to get everything working. And so, like, there's there's struggles there, and like, it's a challenge. When I read that blog post, probably biased, um, I see mostly organizational challenges, not technical challenges, um, around code sharing and a variety of other um, uh, very other things from Airbnb. It- it reminded me of when Twitter shared the whole, like, you know, oh, we had to rewrite it from Ruby to something else. I don't remember what it was at the moment. And then they sort of admitted it was more of, of you know, structural decisions or internal organization rather than just technology, right? Because it would they were just not implementing it the right way. So for me, it was also a little bit like that, right? At the end of the day, it's not so much about the technology. Is it, is it your team ready to do this? And are you taking the right decisions? But yeah, whatever. I mean, they grew the team to like, yeah, I don't know how any code base. I don't know how any mobile code base, frankly, scales to a thousand users, a thousand yeah. developers. Like uh, there were all kinds of things, and so like they were hoping to do it for code sharing, but there were other problems <laughs> by by adding all those engineers in. Uh, and so like obviously I didn't scale Tasker to a thousand developers, so I don't know. Um, yeah. But at least half of what I saw in that article um, wasn't technological uh, issue and we didn't experience the same and that's one of the things that we always like you know like to advise other companies like if you're taking it as such a new technology like react native in 2015 for instance you know there's going to be breaking changes in the new versions right so you might want if you're if you want to really to scale like maybe you should choose something more consolidated right we were having yeah. a conversation today with a big corporation about you know using react native today versus angular it's like well both of them are pretty pretty consolidated now but two years ago react maybe was not that stable right and and in 2015 angular went from angular js to angular 2 angular now and it was breaking changes so now both of them are pretty stable anyways wants to get into the role that you're doing right now at grouper let's jump into grouper because one of the things is that that probably shares with the previous company is that you know, as a founding member, you get to be very close to the product, right? And maybe you were a product CTO because you were also a founder. Had you not been a founder, maybe it would have been mm. different, right? What drove you to to, uh, to create the company and then stand up as a CEO this time? A much more public-facing role. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, well, what Grouperu does 
Um, hey, let's be clear. I'm not that far. Like I didn't, I didn't become the CEO of Nike or something. Uh, I'm, I'm the CEO not of yet. a small open source <laughs> code <laughs> company. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, that leap is, is much, is, is much smaller than, you know, yeah. the, than the public facing, uh, commercial something or another. So, you know, baby yeah. steps, but, uh, Grouperu is a open source, uh, framework, uh, for moving data around specifically, for syncing data from your product or your data warehouse into the tools that you're using, like uh, MailChimp or Marketo or Zendesk or Intercom or Iterable or Brazor, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Something I saw at TaskRabbit that has been confirmed, I don't know, 100 times over now, is this interaction between the product and engineering organization and the marketing organization or the uh, operations team, which is, hey, we need data and these tools over here to be successful. Can you help us? And even when I was the executive in charge of approving like a million dollars of budget for marketing to move our retention number or something, even then, I understand, it's very important to move that number. Even yeah. when they asked me for that data to get into our, our system, like uh, email system like Marketo, I was like, I don't know. I, I can't, really, I can't yeah. really focus on that. Like I'm moving retention on my funnel. I've got this infrastructure project. And the reality is no engineer was excited about doing this. You just don't wake up in the morning excited to sync data to Marketo. And... It held, it held us back as a business uh, because something like retention is a huge lever uh, to be successful. Someone buys, you know, two times a month instead of one times a month, you've, you've doubled your, your revenue. Like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yet every quarter we're like, oh gosh, we, just, we, didn't, we didn't move it. And I think it was a lot to do with this reluctance to integrate well with the tools and really empower that marketing team to be successful. And in the end, that's because it's not fun and it's annoying. And so when an engineer eventually gets that story, like, okay, every time someone signs up, sync them to MailChimp. Uh, they're like, first of all, they say, do I have to do this? And they're like, yeah, you got to do this. Like, okay, fine. <laughs> so they Google sync data to MailChimp uh, and they get like MailChimp's API in a variety of different ways to meet with a salesperson. And they're like, okay, I don't know. Maybe in Rails, you would, uh, you would, you know, if you're using delay job or rescue or something, you'd schedule something to run every day and you do a bunch of queries and you'd put it up in MailChimp. Maybe yeah. otherwise you'd run a, a cron job or something like that uh, to do that and you'd make some new thing. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, oh, thank God. Uh, and you'd like, you, maybe you'd test it, maybe you wouldn't. If you did test it, you'd uh, use VCR or something like that to record it, and you'd hope never to have to do it again because you don't want to get back in that system. Is this a story you've heard before in general? Yeah, that because it breaks, they change the API, the API and things like that, right? So exactly. it's a story that comes back every now and then. Like it happened to us. We've got integrations all over of MailChimp, Slack, Typeform, what have you, yeah, right? Exactly. And so, and so now... A, the first time you're here, it breaks is from the marketing team. <laughs> and yeah. you don't know how it breaks. And you didn't really, like, you didn't, this is just, it's not your best work. Yeah. And then, and they're like, oh, now we need lifetime value in there. And you're like, oh, God. Like, and you put it on some spreadsheet and you try to do them all at the end of the quarter. And you have to yeah. re-record all that stuff. And in general, it's just not what you want to be doing, which is building the core product. Even better, if when you search for sync data to MailChimp, you know, in the top five was a was a uh, was an open source solution where you say you install this, you teach it a little bit about your system, and you say go. And now you've got a great architecture to sync your data into not just Mailchimp, but you won't have to actually rewrite anything when you ne then need to sync that same data when you decide to to upgrade to Braze, or the the CS team comes and says we want to get some data into. Uh, Zendesk. And so now we're syncing all that data around no problem. And it's just uh, a day instead of uh, a month to do a big integration. Um, and I don't know, happier developers, happier marketing team. 
So that's uh, you kind of like answered the question that I was gonna I was, I was gonna ask you, which is, uh, did you find this pain point in your previous company? It seems yes. So, did you like who are the co-founders? Like who did you co-found this with? What are the yeah, roles? Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a uh, getting the band back together kind of story. Uh, I worked okay. with Andy and Evan circa I don't know twenty thirteen to twenty fifteen at TaskRabbit. Uh, and uh, we experienced nice. this. We built the version of this ish um, that we had at TaskRabbit. Um, Andy was in charge of the product. Uh, Evan was in charge of uh, DevOps and marketing integrations uh, and other odds and ends. Um, yeah. And you know, as I was thinking about the next thing that company that I wanted to build, thought about the problems that that I'd had and. This one just kept coming up and it was still unsolved. And we think there's a really big opportunity for open source to, 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 to solve it. And why didn't you build it within TaskRabbit? Was it something that just, you know, you had the idea back then or you had it afterwards? Because it seems like you had it back then, but was it there no space to build this kind of side projects or you felt like it was time for you to move on? Um. You mean why didn't I stay at TaskRabbit and build it? Why, why didn't you it? build it in? Yeah, within TaskRabbit. Yeah. Well, we built a version of. The, we, I mean, every company eventually builds something to sync their data around. Uh, it's just yeah, what's needed. And so, like, but it was get this done as quickly as possible. And so it would like you know it was uh, it would query make a bunch of queries and figure out the data it needs to send and then do this and do that on a schedule and or triggered by our our message bus system. Mm-hmm. Nobody. <laughs> internally would spend the time to put the the ui and the care and certainly all the integrations that we've done in in grouperu because no of course not you, you don't have a year to to build a syncing system that isn't you know uh your core core product that's why our open source thing adds so much value and so like in general after 10 years at TaskRabbit, i thought this should exist but it still wasn't the right call for TaskRabbit to pay me as a CTO or any of the engineers to put this much effort into a, you know, a solution in this space. Um, because, you know, it's just like they, we had to expand in Italy and, and uh, you know, and Spain and all these other places. And so we didn't incubate it. I didn't build it myself in TaskRabbit because you know, it just wasn't the right uh, investment for, for TaskRabbit. Now, once it already exists, just like building your own new front-end framework, like maybe something should exist, but it's not yeah. that investment to make. But now that it exists, um, you know, it's, it's like you have had an engineer or two working on the best possible way to sync your data around for a year or more. Like, it'd be crazy not to at least try it out. Right. Also, because you mentioned that by the time of the acquisition, you had only 12 engineers, right? So yeah, maybe certainly. You yeah. didn't have enough bandwidth for that. I mean, had you been Google, you can always have the 20% rule and you could build this and 10 open source libraries, right? And a programming language and what have you, right? Exactly. But just, you know, you wanted to keep your team focused. However, you decided, you decided, what other things did you bring into the company that you've taken from the previous experience? It mm-hmm. like, seems like you brought some team. You brought an idea that you had already previously tested, which I think it's brilliant, if you will. But um, what other things have you brought into the company that you have piggybacked from TaskRabbit? Mm. Um, I think, uh, well, per our previous discussion, uh, we did not bring Rails. Uh, all of this That was my in, next question. Is, so <laughs> Is in Node. Um, all right, good to know. It's... You know, maybe there's something going to be in the new Ruby version, but in general, this job, like the actual job the code is doing, is like 90% of the time waiting for MailChimp to tell us something, <laughs> like asynchronous yeah. HTTP calls. And so even right. in TaskRabbit, we didn't build our sync engine in, in, in Ruby because uh, yeah. it's just not the most efficient situation. Like the scalability yeah. is much better in, in Node and, uh, and the event loop and, and such, um, multi-threaded. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't bring that, but we did bring um, testing, uh, which is strongly from the Rails community, now making its way out to all of these other things. We're actually super excited to bring this notion of 
if not TDD, but just in general testing to the, the data space. Most people that build these syncing kind of apps basically like, like code something up and then like look over in MailChimp <laughs> to see if it's right, which is really kind of crazy um, if you've got a million users and it, when they get added or removed or something like that, like triggers all kinds of crazy uh, email campaigns and, and things like that. And so we're, we're super excited to bring testing not only to our product, but to the people that build on top of our library um, and, and how they can uh, be more confident about these kinds of integrations. And you sort of answered my, my next question, was, which was going to be, what's your tech stack? You mentioned only Node, but what's the rest of the tech stack? What technologies are you using? Because I'm curious about, you know, it's a company founded in 2020, right? It's yeah. super recent. I mean, I can tell by heart most of the tech stacks of companies created between, you know, 2014, <laughs> 2018, maybe. But like 2020, it's already, it's already interesting. I mean. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's dependent on the problem at hand. Yeah. Um, I think that if you're going to build Grouparoo, like you should choose something that's optimized for multi-threaded something, something, something. And so like a good answer might have been, uh, may have been uh, Go or, or Go. Node or, or something like that. Uh, yeah. Then next question about the business, like open source, not open source, like, developer profile that you're talking about like in general javascript has Correct. huge penetration and so basically we took multi-threaded and then popular language uh, and knowledge um, because we hope like uh, i've talked to a, a developer in uh vietnam and brazil um and they're they're doing integrations to the equivalent in their country of mailchimp like we would never do that and so how do you make that easy? At least part of that is language accessibility. Uh, right. We chose that same thing had us lead to choosing TypeScript, actually, not just Node and not just JavaScript. Because mm -hmm. when you're hoping for plugins, it's super important to uh, be super explicit about what your API contract is. Uh, okay. And so, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's how we made that choice. If I was building... Uh, like a SaaS B2B knowledge management system, like I'd probably choose Rails. If I was if I was building something in the data science AI space, I'd probably choose Python. Um, I think it, it, it somewhat depends on the, the uh, you know, the company, I think. Um, if you got like, I don't know, what, what about the rest like front end database <laughs> or right. like uh, so stuff? Uh, Grouper runs on is a is an app um, and a syncing engine. Um, it runs mm -hmm. on top of uh, Postgres or uh, SQLite, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. No particular reason it couldn't run on top of MySQL. Um, there's a ORM equivalent um, in Node, Active Record equivalent. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, the background job processing is very close to to Rescue. It needs Redis. Mm -hmm. uh, the front end is in uh, React. And that's a very, very popular choice for 2020. Um, actually, one of the things... Uh, oh, I and Next.js. Next uh, very Next good uh, project. I, I recommend people check it out. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I mean, up what we were commenting before, right? React has suffered a lot of changes in the last you know, the last few years, but it's pretty stable right now. And uh, it's good to see we've built a lot of projects in React recently. So we also have got this learning curve and like all the suffer a little bit of all these like breaking changes and, and the switch between the, you know, the approach of mm, of working with like the object, yeah, towards uh, hooks and all of that. So in the last year or so, so it's been kind of crazy, but interesting nonetheless. I mean, we suffered the same when, you know, we adopted TypeScript in, I think it was like early 2015, something mm, like that. Wow, it's early. That's pretty early. Yeah, that's pretty early. And uh, another thing that you mentioned here, and maybe more like people in the business side of things. I mean, for tech people, it's easy to explain. But people in the business side of things, it will be a little bit harder for them to understand. Why did you build it open source, right? Ah. What's the reason? And why shouldn't be they scared of using an open source technology? I mean, it's 2021. We shouldn't be having this conversation. Yet, it still happens. You think that business people are scared of using open source? 
For what reason? Because uh, because I think that most of them, or like a lot of them, significant number of them, they still don't know that most of the things they're using nowadays, they're open source now, right? Yeah. But, but if we're talking to the corporates, you know, uh, you know, let's rewind 10 to 15 years when, when I started working, open source in big corporates and things like that, mm. it was a forbidden word. It was a huge red flag. Like, obviously, you should be using Oracle. Oracle, you couldn't be using, you know, open sure. source databases. You, would, you wouldn't be using Ruby on Rails. You have to use, you know. So... I've, I've I've never met a marketing person. I mean, it's it's just about familiarity. Like I've never met a marketing person that was like, "I'm not using WordPress." Like that's not a that's not a thing. Uh, yeah, I've heard. But like, there's yeah, a but, general, but no for executive but maybe, notion of owning your own IP or something like that. I, I generally under understand that. And, I think and your data as well, because we're talking data, not some marketing pages. And I think like here it's more sensible, yeah, uh, sensitive because we're talking about data, right? Right. So. Well, something very interesting that actually open source and self-hosting enables in this space is actually owning your data. So how would you do this otherwise? You would spray as much data as you can out to these tools, and now it's over there. Yeah. And, and maybe, you send, um, maybe you send your country and your address and your lifetime value and something else over to a tool like uh, Marketo or Iterable or whatever, so that over there you can make a dynamic list called high value Barcelona yeah. customers, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, using Group Roo, especially with GDPR and these kinds of things, like there's a risk in that. Using Group Roo, this is running inside your own cloud. Uh, in your own Postgres database that you own. And the group part of Grouparoo is that we do segmentation too. And so you can define the properties that are interesting to you, your lifetime value, your country, your city, all these things. And then you can make segments out of those uh, groups because we're a kangaroo-themed uh, group building tool. And so now yeah. you have this high-value barrier of or Barcelona. I said customers, you can sync the notion that they're in that to that tool and actually less of your information left your, uh, your firewall, um, which, is, which is great for privacy. So now your marketing team can use that. And the PII never actually left. So among other things, GDPR, um, those kind of data governance things, um, a lot of medical companies are, are very interested in Grouparoo because it's the same sort of story with their health information. You, can't, you just can't be sending somebody's prescription to MailChimp. Yeah. But I, if, you keep, if you keep it in your own world, you can, you can create a, a tag called should email them about whatever <laughs> uh, in MailChimp using Group. Yeah. Now, are you facing any sort of resistance of companies trying to you know, use your product just because... It was created one year ago and precisely being open source and then a relatively new technology into the market mm -hmm. uh, or you're still not servicing those kind of clients that perhaps are too big. Like what stage of the sales are you at right now? What is your target client? Um, most of our organic adoption, because uh, the true, uh, you asked why open source. Um, yeah. Open source first because engineers are making this discussion. So like if the marketer, the marketers in my experience, uh, go from saying like, yeah, we should use this system and this is how we should do it because I, I feel comfortable in that system too. Oh my God, engineers, I just want to send a card abandonment email. Like, please, whatever you pick. And so open source is a way to engage with the engineers and have them feel more comfortable setting it up and have control over their data and all this, all, a lot of the reasons that they're not excited about using uh, the SaaS tools. The And therefore, the people that are adopting um, organically our solution are where the engineers are, are Googling or hearing about us and making those decisions. And so it tends to be in uh, medium to small-ish companies. Uh, like you've got the first growth engineer uh, that's focused solely on helping that marketing team or to move some number or something like that, and they need to or they're just adopting, um, they're moving off of like, a, they're moving from like a newsletter to like real persona, personalized marketing and, and things like that. And so at this point, you know, biased, of course, but 
when Grouper exists, it's crazy to write your own custom syncing framework inside of your own tool or or anything. You might as well use the the you know the, what's available. Um, and so those people are adopting it. Some of the bigger companies that are doing it are more or less on the same trajectory. They just like are switching tools or they want to enable new things like the health uh, people I talked about. They want to enable new marketing capabilities and still be seriously controlling their, their data. Because how big is the team right now? How many clients have you got more or less? Kind of to put things into perspective, in one year, what have you accomplished? <laughs> uh, we have like tens of people doing this in, in production. Not, not hundreds. And, and how about like the, the thing, like I wanted to ask, one of the particular cases in which I think this can be useful, you, you tell me otherwise, because um, we've got like, for instance, in our company, we've got a lot of integrations with the marketing tools and granted, we're not very big, but we're pretty active in the marketing department because we're a purely inbound company, right? So we leverage yeah. the use of like Typeform, we've got HubSpot, then we've got, what else? We've got Zapier, we've got MailChimp, we've got yeah. social media, we've got a podcast, we've got YouTube here and there. We've got a, like a mess and Slack then. We also have got a community on Slack with an auto-invite uh, thingy uh, built with Typeforms. It's kind of like, it's a mess for, for a company of only 15 people, right? Sure. So the main, like the, it's not only about the cost of building these integrations, the migration is even more painful. Is a tool like Grouper also useful in migrating from one tool to the other or not yet? Is that something that's in the roadmap or, or is it already useful from what you have right now? Yeah, what we have right now. So if you, I mean, it's just like, you know, if we're talking to CTOs here, right? Like it's, yeah. it's like good architecture, right? Like almost yeah. every uh, integration that you build as quickly as possible to one thing you like, all right, what do they need? Well, they need their email address and their lifetime value and whether or not they've signed up for this or they've used this piece of the product. And like, I don't know, you're writing some queries and it's very tied to whoever you're integrating with, right? right. Uh, a, a good architect, if you were going to do this on purpose and you knew ahead of time that you would have three different things and by the way, you might migrate this other thing, you would abstract those properties of those customers uh, a little bit, and then calculate all of those, and then map who gets what, right? Sort of a, mm -hmm. I don't know, an abstraction uh, layer yeah. or just a like a sort of data foundation. And so that's what Grouper does. You define your data, uh, what it means to be lifetime value means. Like, does it include, is the query that gets lifetime value, does that include where is not canceled on your purchases table <laughs> or is returned? Like, you know, exactly what does it mean for a lifetime value? And then somewhat separately, architecturally and like configuration-wise, you say, okay, great, MailChimp gets lifetime value. What this means is that incrementally switching from MailChimp to Braze or adding in Zendesk, uh, because maybe you want to tag your users in Dendesk as VIPs and they get faster, you know, customer support. Incrementally, what that means is, is like a 10-minute job. You just say, okay, great. Grouperu's already written the integration to Zendesk. All I need to do is say, you know, this, these are the data points that I already have to send. And so upgrade scenarios and adding scenarios are trivial um, once, you know, once you've done that first integration. And one thing that might not be trivial is moving from a, I assume, purely B2C company that you had a tax rabbit to mm. an open source framework that's, I think, oriented to B2B companies, right? So sure. what, what implications does this have on the technical side? Maybe B2C yeah. needs to scale faster and then be mm -hmm. more oriented towards marketing, whereas B2B open source, you know, requires more documentation, doing things right, more like, right. I don't know. Um, this is the first yeah, part, time I ask this question, so. Sure. Part of, part of the appeal for me was trying a new space. Like, I, I, I did not have it in me to do another peer-to-peer -peer consumer marketplace, right? Like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I got, the, I'm good. And like, yeah. Donnie, check, right? <laughs> uh, 
for a couple of reasons. Like it's just a lot of that. And I like to, every human, I think likes to try new things and be like, I would actually be scared to join another company or make another company. Like I probably don't have many new thoughts in that area, frankly. Um, and so let's try something B2B and it's different. Like, you know, I'm, I'm using HubSpot uh, to track who our customers are for, for example, and uh, I'm doing sales calls um, and I'm doing podcasts like this. Uh, so it's about community building, mostly the open source, but vaguely the V2B notion too, is about community building. This, this thing isn't going to live or die if by the code working or not. Like I'm, I'm very confident that our code is working <laughs> um, as well as, as can be. Um, it's more about telling the story and building the community uh, that's going to be important. Like there's plenty of things on GitHub, 100,000 lines of code that is great. Uh, it's the, the issue is that nobody knows about it. Uh, and so more, more than anything, it's around, uh, my job now is around, uh, evangelizing. Yeah, it is. And that's sort of, uh, it, it makes me go into the next question. Last two questions before we wrap okay. it up. The first one being, um, you know, you, you are, or you were a product oriented CTO, right? And now you created this company that's, you know, it's open source. It's very, so to speak, very oriented to developers because at the end of the day, you know, even though it's, you know, it's for marketing people, it's data driven. And but at the end of the day, developers do these sort of integrations. Definitely. They will understand better your product and probably, I don't know, maybe it's like the CTO is going to be buying the product, right? Yeah, um, definitely. Or, or CDO even would be buying the product, right? Yes. But how, how do you, how do you keep the company website and the pitching and like your mm. message from being too technical, mm. right? Because at the end of the yep. day, you, you need to sell the product. And if you're too geeky, you will not sell it, right? So it will be more complicated. Um, you can't go mainstream from day one. I don't know if I got the message through, but... Um, I, think, I, th I think it's a real persona-based question, right? Like yeah. where we're at right now, building out the community is every time we've changed our website, actually, we've made it more geeky. All right. So you're going uh, into the other direction. Less accessible, in the more geeky. In the beginning, we pitched the company mission uh, on the website and, and when we talked to people and we talked to marketers. And yeah. frankly, it was really easy um, to, to get them to want to use our, our, our thing. Uh, like, you can have some very... If you're, if you're a developer talking to a marketer, you can have some very empathetic conversation if you want to about how their life kind of sucks because they don't have the data they need to be successful. It's easy. And they're like, oh, thank you. Finally, like a developer that sees me. Like I've been yeah. trying to have what, that for years. And then you're <laughs> like, great. So let's use this thing. And they're like, great. And I'm like, okay, now let's, uh, let's get your uh, CTO on board. And they're like, oh, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> like this isn't the first email that the CMO has sent to the CTO saying let's try out this crazy tool. Like yeah. that generally speaking that's not a fast track to success. The open source angle and what we're trying to do here is acknowledging that the gatekeepers to this system are the engineering organization. And they're going to they're going to bring it in. And so every time we've changed our homepage it's actually closer uh, to the personas we're focusing on, the growth engineers, the data engineers, the platform engineers. And the pitch isn't like solve your organization. It's like get your marketer off your back. <laughs> and the marketer is going to be happy when, when they do implement it. And now they can self-serve their data and all this amazing stuff. But that the gatekeepers to the system um, are the engineers. And so if anything, we've gotten dorkier every every time we've updated it and i think that's why you will be successful because if you want to build community with an open source project actually what you need to do is acknowledge the people out there who are going to support these is engineers 99 of the times right so right. um it's it's good to build a community around them let's wrap it up by asking there's the, no marketer the, super passionate about react you know like no <laughs> it's, it's just know. a way to a way to accomplish their 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 goals and it's the engineers that are making those choices 
unless they're writing the RFP for a marketing website and they heard React is good and they want to go React. They don't know why, but they want to go with React, right? Well, that's good. That's, <laughs> that's good to be the consultant then. Correct. Yeah, let's uh, uh, let's wrap it up by asking the signature question of this podcast. What's uh-huh. the biggest the biggest tech fuck up you've ever done? And if you can quantify it in money. Tech F up. All right. Yeah. So um, most of the fuck ups that I think about are <laughs> business related. The biggest tech uh, one that I won't give an exact dollar amount on is uh, when we, uh, circa 2018, uh, TaskRabbit, uh, had a security incident and we got, uh, hacked essentially. Yeah. Well, right. Um, this is like the worst possible scenario in, in the CTO kind of vibe, right? Like personal information, uh, fortunately a variety of things were, you know, like good, password practices and whatnot, but like screwed up our whole infrastructure. We had to rebuild everything from scratch basically as, as quickly as possible. Uh, and then you have to do all of the data breach stuff, which can be quite expensive. We had to pay for um, credit reports for anyone on our platform, millions of people that, that wanted it, for example, as part of a, as part of a data breach uh, response. But why uh, was that your responsibility? Law. Like, was it some kind of negligence or why was it yours? Because it seems like a company-wide issue, right? Or I mean, not personally. Like, I didn't personally have to. Oh, no, yeah. I'm asking for, like, thing, a, co- a, personal, a personal tech fuck-up, like something you directly cost. Oh, the, well, yeah. sure. And so, like, I, it's hard to say when you're CTO who directly yeah. caused it. Like, I, I can, we can go through the something post-mortem. You can know. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, there were, there were mistakes in the company that, that caused it. My personal, like literally like some code I wrote that was a disaster or something like that. Um, okay. Here's one. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many millions of dollars, but it's just thinking of random case. So we <laughs> want a performant website. Uh, and so, you know, leaning into the rails situation, we were doing, uh, page caching um, on, on our, on our rails pages. Uh, and so, you know, the, the ERB template would, you know, render and the, the whole page would render and we would write that file to, to disc. And so then Nginx, Nginx is on this box. And so when it was rendering it, you know, before it went to rails, it would say like, does this file exist in this, in this folder structure? So our homepage really only had to hit Rails once, um, which was great. And so the first person that got it, you know, it took, I don't know, let's call it a second or whatever on the order of a second, but the next person was on the order of 10 milliseconds. Yeah. Uh, Great. So then, okay, great. Now we're investing in SEO. And, you know, that's a part of, uh, performance is a big part of that. And so we're building out this whole framework so that the URL like TaskRabbit slash San Francisco slash neighborhood slash handyman, like combinatorics of all of our places and all of our tasks uh, exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Great. And so now all those pages exist and that's great. Uh, You know, we had a model uh, that, combined all the geographies and, you know, all of the things and we looked them up and and rendered it and that's fine. And so we want to page cache that too. Great. So that's happening. Then it's like, well, the odds actually of any given human hitting any one of these now hundred thousand pages are fairly low. Uh, So we, and so the first time the Google bot hits it, it's going to see it be slow and we don't want that. We want it to be fast. And of course, every user should be fast the first time. All right, great. So what we need to do is pre-cache all of these things. And so we've got N servers. I don't know. Let's just say 10 plus, maybe 100. I don't know. Any given time. And we basically need to hit all of these URLs on all of these servers so that we write the file to disk. So, okay. So I add something in rescue to do this. 
and basically per server hit all of these URLs. And then there's some error handling and whatnot. Long story short, uh, I deploy this and we're basically DDoSing ourselves. Uh, like every time this <laughs> runs, 100,000 requests all in the same second or whatever hit. All right. Not, not just the whole task grab, but each of our servers yeah. um, to, to generate all of these files ahead of time. Um, and it was, you know, not so smart. Basically, in, in <laughs> but we all learn from that. That's why we want to share it. We want to make it more accessible. We all fuck up. We've all wiped out uh, production databases. So uh, it's great that you shared. This is a really good one. So thank you for that. Brian, let's wrap it up. One minute just to say, how can we help you? And what's what's coming next next for uh, Kruperu? Yeah. Uh, how can you help? Uh, yeah, basically, uh, check out uh, Kruperu.com. Check out our GitHub. Uh, try it out. Give us feedback. We'd love to know um, how it's uh, it's going and if it's helping you. And we're using the customers that are uh, well, it's free. So the users that are using our thing uh, to drive the integrations we're making. So if you're doing an integration that other people want to do, we'll be happy to help you out there too, uh, and get uh, and get going and the, the the feedback from from the use. Perfect. I think we can t wrap it up here. Thank you very much, Brian. Yep. Thank you. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?